Well, a very good evening to you all. Uh, welcome to the LSE, for those of you who are not normally here. Uh, for those of you who are, welcome to the old theatre this evening. Um, my name's Tony Travers. I'm from the government department here at the uh, school. And this evening's um, event is what's called British Government at LSE Public Conversation. But it's really an opportunity to hear from the two authors of this large and impressive new book, which is called Cameron at 10, the inside story of Cameron's, well, it's the inside story of David Cameron's leadership between 2010 and 2015, capturing both those general elections. The authors are here. I'll say no more than this now. I'm going to ask them a few questions to get things going uh, when they both said a few words about their book. They are Dr. Anthony Selden, who is uh, a famous political biographer and contemporary historian, one of Britain's, Britain's greatest contemporary historians, and now Vice-Chancellor of the University of Buckingham, and Peter Snowden, who is a journalist and historian, and I think was a pupil of yours, I think I read in the book, or at least in the acknowledgments, and is himself a journalist and historian, and duty editor at the BBC Radio 4's Today programme. So two fascinating takes, a historian and a journalist historian's take on this most contemporary of public figures. So all I will say now is to welcome our two speakers and ask uh, Anthony Selden to introduce or to start the introduction of their book. Anthony. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you, Tony, very, very much. And uh, it's just great to uh, be here. Uh, And yes, Peter was uh, my uh, student at a school in Catford, uh, no less. We used to call it South Dulwich, but it wasn't actually in Catford. And uh, if you live in Catford, I love it, by the way. So uh, that's just want to get that out of the way. And yeah, he was was there with a guy called Jukura Muna, I don't know what he's doing now. Um, <laughs> and he, along with Peter, helped on, on, on books so uh, that I was writing at the time, uh, particularly one on major, so that clearly uh, made a big impact on Chukka Amuna um, and his views about Jeremy Corbyn. So, uh, right, okay, let's just get a sense here about... This is my proposition to you question to begin with. Essentially, uh, and not being overly prissy or academic about it, who thinks that overall Cameron was quite a good uh, Prime Minister? Uh, hands up. And hands up who thinks overall uh, and on balance and everything else he wasn't. Uh, so I have absolutely no idea because I thought about 60 or 70% of you put your hands up to begin with and I think about 70% put your hands up. Uh, <laughs> that just shows that an LSE audience uh, is 150%, so is at least 50% better than any other UCL or Imperial audience, uh, which is uh, astonishing. So I just thought I'd just begin with a few uh, thoughts, really, to, to share about... Uh, Cameron and the government of 2010 to 15, the general election, which is where the book uh, stops. By the way, this, uh, just in case you thought uh, that um, this was, or I was, uh, uh, Michael Ashcroft, uh, and this here is Isabel Oakeshott uh, <laughs> in drag, uh, I just want to dispute you. This is the kosher book, uh, or the halal book. Uh, there are no uh, pigs. Um, <laughs> None that we know of. Yeah, we did check the index just in, in, 
in case. Um, to to to. Uh, but you know, clearly that was a. Uh, we knew as we were writing uh, that this explosive. Uh, book was uh, following along uh, behind us, and there were some loving uh, comments uh, that uh, Lord Ashcroft would put up periodically on Twitter, uh, very supportive about, uh, as you can imagine, uh, very supportive about our work. And uh, when the book came out, there were some really nice comments too. So so thanks, Michael, if you're out there in the audience uh, tonight. Um, uh, But it's always been very friendly but it's always been competition, let's say. Um, anyway, so, so there were two books. Um, and on this one, uh, we had a really radical idea, um, which is we wanted to get to the truth. <laughs> uh, which is weird and doesn't get you headlines. It really doesn't because the press, uh, uh, you know, the press says, we know this is untrue, uh, but it's, we feel we've got to tell the public about it and, and have lots of pages about this untrue stuff because they need to know, but we know it's untrue, so don't think we are uh, deluded uh, about that. Uh, and um, if you are actually setting out to write something that is true, it, it's, it's uh, a more difficult uh, case. So I think just five quick thoughts at the beginning is, is when we were trying to think about Cameron and... Uh, it, 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 it occurred to us that uh, the previous four uh, conservative leaders had ended in tears and failure. And was there something deep-rooted about the Conservative Party that made it almost ungovernable? I mean, that's a lot. You know, four, you can, you know, maybe one or two, but to have four in a row with Major and then William Hague uh, chucked out, both chucked out, and then IDS didn't even make his four years, and then Michael Howard... Uh, only made two uh, years or so. Um, And what was happening, actually? What was all that about? Um, And why is the Conservative Party so difficult, apparently, uh, to govern? Is it indeed one party uh, at all, or is it uh, breaking up into uh, different parties? But also, it wasn't just about uh, a crisis in the Conservative Party of leadership and authority, uh, was there more generally uh, something about political leadership in, in Britain uh, with the leaders of, leaders of Lib Dems having uh, uh, problems, but also the Labour Prime Ministers, uh, Blair, with so much going for him, and then winning that general election victory in 2005 to be uh, then absolutely eaten alive by his own party, uh, and was Labour really two parties driven by uh, the egos of two people and the supporters around those, ego, uh, around those powerful leaders uh, in some uh, uh, a kind of absurd psychodrama uh, that rent apart not just the Labour Party but also uh, the country? What was happening there? What was this? Uh, why was it so hard to provide uh, consistent uh, uh, leadership? And... Um, it, it, so so, so that, that, that was one set uh, of issues that we were trying to resolve. And another uh, was the circumstances in which Cameron came to power. Our many uh, writers about premiers and leaders, and this goes also for uh, you know, football managers uh, and people taking over, all, whatever the organization is, tend to look at them as if they're all operating on a level playing field. But... Uh, to have taken over as Prime Minister of Britain 
in May 2010 was, uh, or was it not, a more difficult proposition than it had been for uh, Blair um, 13 years before in May uh, 1997, when he had a, uh, an enormous landslide in Parliament, a unified uh, party and Labour uh, movement uh, with the press wholly behind him, a very strong uh, economy, a very clear mandate and a very uh, weak uh, opposition uh, and a discredited opposition after uh, 17 years in power. So it was a, um, it was a looking at those and looking at what Cameron had uh, to face with the state of the economy without having a majority um, in Parliament, uh, without the Lib Dems and in coalition. Um, so, so that was a second kind of considerations. And then looking at the world stage uh, and what was happening there, and was it in fact a more uh, difficult time on the world stage with the EU uh, facing not just its economic uh, problems with the Eurozone, uh, but also uh, the whole uh, question about what Europe existed and what is uh, the base of Europe and where is the solidity if you take out Angela Merkel and does the EU have any solidity other than Angela Merkel. And the US, with a president who uh, many people, I have to say myself included, uh, ha had such high hopes of uh, in President Obama, uh, and yet uh, it would appear by 2010 not performing as a strong leader on the international stage. It's always easier for a British Prime Minister um, to perform well if we have a strong president in the White House. Um, looking at the rise of militant Islam, the Arab Spring, how do you deal with that, and a resurgent uh, Putin uh, in uh, Moscow. So those were the, the, the foreign issues that you have to judge the performance of this Prime Minister against. And then um, can we imagine this government, can we honestly imagine this government without George Osborne? Would that be conceivable? And has there been another uh, government uh, where you've had a second who is so close, um, so enduringly close, um, personally and uh, uh, philosophically uh, with the Prime Minister? And yet not, two key things, uh, deferring to the Prime Minister again and again when there were differences and not actively seeking his job, although that's maybe beginning to change in the second term uh, now. Well, let's face it, it's definitely beginning to change. Uh, so, 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 but that wasn't an issue in the first term. And then, you know, final, finally, how do we, um, you know, and make another point there, just very quickly, they were so young. Cameron, the youngest prime minister for 198 years. Osborne, the youngest chancellor for 120 years. Does that matter? Well, yes, it might. Uh, it would matter less if they had mentors. Where were the mentors? Even Margaret Thatcher had uh, Thornycroft, who'd been Churchill's, for goodness sake, Chancellor of the Sheker back in 1951 as her mentor as party chairman, and then Willie Whitelaw and other elder statesmen. Cameron hasn't had those figures. And Haig, who was supposed to provide that gravitas. Look at Matthew Dancona's fantastic uh, uh, book um, uh, about the coalition governments for early years. Haig comes out as, as one of a troika, of the three working together, but he very quickly faded uh, in 2011, 2012. So it was just those two people. And finally, what are we to make of Cameron? Is he, I mean, three, possible, uh, three possibilities we can look at. One is that he was a complete dilettante, um, didn't know what he was doing, and just, you know, moved, shifted along by... Uh, events um, and uh, blown this way and that. 
uh, nice bloke maybe, but, you know, it was all a little bit beyond him. Um, and But he stuck it out because he went to Eton and he'd been on the rugby pitch and you know that you don't give up until the final whistle. Uh, and, and, or second, uh, a second interpretation was that he uh, was just a great pragmatist, a pragmatist not just in terms of his policy because he clearly travels light uh, or does he in terms of his own beliefs, but also pragmatic in terms of the way that he ran uh, the government, deferring to uh, the effective ministers, IDS, welfare, Gove, obviously, uh, at, at education, uh, obviously, Osborne at the economy, and, and increasingly, uh, uh, Jeremy Hunt at, uh, at Health after Lansley went, but uh, Theresa May at the Home Office. Uh, and you know, much more like a, a, a chairman, uh, just letting them have their uh, own rope. Or, 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 you know, final possibility, if he's not a dilettante nor uh, a supreme pragmatist, is he in fact a complete visionary who uh, is carrying out his project of transferring power from the individual to the state in a way that Margaret Thatcher never completed. She never uh, got it properly into education, uh, there were no academies under, or let alone free schools under Mrs. Thatcher or the NHS, uh, or, and she, she, uh, 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 she didn't even pursue vouchers that would have uh, uh, greatly altered the balance of power between the government and the individual. The NHS, she didn't pursue post office welfare, that he is uh, carrying out uh, this great shift uh, in power uh, from the centre. Uh, to the individual, and even with North Northern Powerhouse pushing power out to the regions, doing something that she loathed, uh, which was giving power to, them, to the mistrusted uh, local government. And today you even see Graham Brady, head of the 1922 committee, questioning whether this is going to reawaken those Thatcherite demons in the local government who are going to be uncontrollable if we give them too much power. They cannot be trusted. And yet here we have this uh, shift going on, and even though, last word, last two words, uh, he's not actually mentioning them by name, achieving the big society by stealth rather than by name, which is all about transfer of power from the individual out to the... Uh, uh, so, sorry, from the state out to the individual. So, you know, those are just some thoughts. Thank you, Anthony. Peter, would you like to add any thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, Anthony. just like to echo everything Anthony said. I Good. totally agree. Um, <laughs> it would be a bad thing if we didn't agree. That's what, that's what George Osborne says. If we didn't agree, it was probably a few months ago when we were writing the book, but we do agree. Um, I just echo everything he said, Anthony, and you said uh, it's also it's a story of the premiership. It's a, it's a contemporary history, and we try to approach it through the discipline of contemporary history which most of the uh, testimony for the book has come from about 300 or so interviews and also uh, engaging the people we've talked to and asking them the, to read various chapters and drafts, which we found was a very, very useful exercise because what it did was it reinforced certain things that we thought were accurate, it corrected things that we thought were didn't. Every time we had to make a judgment call and check facts, which maybe some of our rival authors maybe didn't do in some cases. Who do you have in mind there, Peter? I, I couldn't possibly comment. But, uh, <laughs> but that, that was the process we went through, and some people have criticised it for being too close to your sources, but I think actually what it does is it produces, as far as we can get, an accurate picture based on sources that we trust, based on a balance of views and judgments that we form. So we hope that when you read the book that you will think that this is a, uh, a work of integrity in terms of contemporary history. 
Uh, the second point I'd like to make is, um, obviously, it's a book about David Cameron, but it's also a history of the coalition government. And I think we should note that uh, the phenomenon of, of a peacetime coalition we haven't seen for a very long time. Certainly, the wartime coalition under Churchill was the last coalition government that there was. And we did uh, go out of our way to talk to as many senior Lib Dems as possible, from Nick Clegg downwards, Danny Alexander, the two people in the, in the quad, as it was, David Laws as well, try, and also their special advisors and their officials, to try and get a sense of what was their side of the story. Because obviously, as we chronicle, House of Lords reform, the AV referendum, there were two massive issues in which there were huge rows and arguments. And we wanted to get their side of the story into the book, and we hope we have done faithfully. So those are the two points I thought I'd like to, to uh, put in support of Anthony's main points. And um, I'll hand it back to you, Tony. Great. Okay, well, look, thanks for that by way, uh, as an introduction. Um, in looking at the, reading the book, um, I'm struck by the comparisons early on with, you mentioned Macmillan, but Stanley Baldwin in particular. And Baldwin, great conservative prime minister, famously known for his pragmatism, his, his uh, easy way with or not, not particularly interested in ideology. And you say in the book that, um, that Cameron is pragmatic, uh, has a pragmatic and measured approach to statecraft, not doctrinaire or ideological. So I wonder whether he represents a move on from the Thatcher years, Mrs. Thatcher was an ideological prime minister, unusual for a conservative, one might argue, that therefore Cameron is a reversion to type for the conservatives towards Baldwin and towards, or indeed Macmillan, towards the kind of conservative who wears policy quite lightly, moves about a bit over time, but in the end has the wider objective of keeping the conservative party held together and in power most of the time. Is that what he looks like? I think, yes, I think in terms of style, he's very much like Baldwin. In terms of his articulation of his peculiar form of conservatism, which is very English, notice the language since the election and on election night has been, his, his language has very much been emphasising one nation, words that Margaret Thatcher very rarely uttered, and if she did, it was more lip service, you would, you would think. So I think in terms of style and his form of communication, he does emulate sort of a Baldwin style of politics. I think the countervailing point, and Anthony probably will elaborate on this as well, um, is that he has presided over a government that has introduced incredibly radical reforms, not least in welfare, but also in the health service, very contentious reforms, which have been divisive. And uh, Baldwin's whole mantra in politics was to be a conciliator, to reconcile differences, whether on the general strike and other things. And he was, the last thing he wanted to do was divide through politics. And I think Cameron obviously doesn't want to do that. But the way he's conducted his government, the way he has ambitiously set his ministers free, as it were, to pursue radical forms. We see Michael Gove in education now in justice, very controversial uh, set of reforms. It's, it almost speaks to sort of the paradox of the man. In many ways, he is a Baldwin-esque figure, but in other ways, he does follow in Margaret Thatcher's footsteps in pursuing a very radical policy agenda. I'm sure, Anthony, you want to elaborate? Yeah, I mean, he sees himself very much... Um, let me say, say two points. First of all, Tony, you are absolutely right that uh, 
we think that he was a Baldwin kind of figure in 31-35, where, of course, Ramsay MacDonald, Labour, Ramsay MacDonald was Prime Minister, but Baldwin, the dominant figure in that coalition, national government, uh, of 31-35, bringing the country uh, through the... Uh, through the Depression and uh, bringing it forward, introducing some uh, social reform, uh, but not dealing effectively with the threat from the dictators. Uh, so we see him in many ways as uh, much more like um, uh, Baldwin than uh, Macmillan. A problem with many prime ministers is they don't know history. I mean, it's hard to think when the last prime minister... Gordon Brown was an honourable exception, um, who uh, read uh, a lot. Um, uh, but by and large, they don't. They kind of have broad notions that they pick up from uh, conferences or, or, or friends. And he, uh, Cameron would like to be in the tradition of, of Shaftesbury and Disraeli uh, and Macmillan, on the one hand, of a one-nation social uh, reformer, but also uh, to be seen to be decisive, uh, like... Uh, Thatcher. And I think it's very, very interesting, Tony, because that election that he thought he was going to lose uh, earlier this year, uh, he honestly thought he would either lose it or be painfully holding together another coalition. And suddenly he finds he has this, you know, socking great majority of 12. Uh, and, and, you know, and he thinks, oh, my God, you know, I, I've, I've got to get some policies together. And that was really very interesting how he, you know, does that. Um, and he comes out with that statement at the sports hall in his constituency about one nation. And he comes back to it again a few hours later uh, outside Downing Street. And this, I think, is a key part of him. And it was there in those early uh, days after he became leader at the end of 2005, very much informed by his absurdly, uh, in a way, uh, different uh, friend, Steve uh, Hilton, the one who genuinely does pad, used to pad around Downing Street without any uh, shoes uh, on or socks. And as we uh, put in the book, one day he even turned up in uh, his uh, cycling shorts uh, and forgot to put his long trousers in. Um, so, you know, he is actually in long trousers, despite some of his more childish uh, habits. Uh, and he was not, not just had a meeting with the Prime Minister, uh, but a meeting with somebody very important with the Prime mm. Minister, uh, too. Uh, and so he had to borrow uh, somebody's trousers, which were much too big for him. Yeah, and, and, and so you have this incredibly chaotic, uh, brilliant figure firing off uh, in every... Uh, direction with a lot of expletives all the time, Steve Hilton. But it was also very much Cameron. It, that sense in that early period from late 05 through to uh, 08 uh, of hugging hoodies and the environment and attacking privilege and grammar schools uh, and distancing yourself from public schools, you know, was something deep in Cameron. And then it went away because uh, then Coulson came into the ascendancy. There was Coulson, who was very pragmatic, very working class, red top, wanted to uh, talk to the core uh, voters who needed to uh, vote Conservative um, uh, if they were going to win. And then you had Steve Hill from the other side. And you had a that the, the 2010 election was a complete mess. It was a mess in terms of direction. It helps you to understand why they wanted to get Linton Crosby in, who was so decisive in 
uh, the 2015, but also it was split in terms of the message. So it was partly kind of soggy, um, a, a, a soggy big society stuff with hard messages about austerity. Um, and now that he won in 2015, he's come back in the conference speech that we heard last week uh, to... Um, uh, to, to uh, house building, uh, to poverty, to racial discrimination, to um, sexual discrimination, a big uh, issue uh, for him often, and, and uh, words that uh, 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 would not be out of place in many new Labour's mouths. So um, there you are. He is, uh, he's many things, Tony. This is part of the paradox of him. He's many things, and he didn't, we didn't expect to hear all this. He didn't expect to be saying it. But I think the deepest part of him is uh, that one nation impulse of, of deep social compassion. You can call it Etonian guilt. Um, and that might indeed be true, but I think it's real in him. Now, you say in the book that he is, on a particular, in a certain, particular set of circumstances, unruffled because he was unruffled. And then you go on to say, <laughs> one of the most psychologically balanced prime ministers since 1900. Yes, quite. Um, I mean, th these are remarkable character traits in many ways. This sort of, you know, what you're saying is that the chillaxedness and the relaxedness and the going out in the evening, going to the theatre, going to the cricket, family and friends, is real. It's a hinterland. And, I mean, does that argue that he's sort of a bit like Blair in a slightly different way, just well-fitted for modern contemporary Britain as its leader. It's interesting. I mean, he's, he's very old-fashioned, as we were talking about. This, his certain sort of Englishness is rather old-fashioned and speaks to a different time, maybe the, the sort of Baldwin era. Mm. Um, but in that sense, he's also a very modern prime minister. I mean, he certainly is a man of his age. And, I mean, the reason we say he's well-balanced is that most of the people we spoke to, including civil servants who have no particular axe to grind and working with him very intimately, business day-to-day, -day, many, many hours of the day, noticed that he was precisely that, unruffled and very businesslike. And interestingly, uh, one of the most senior officials we spoke to said that he would do most of his business very early in the morning with his prime ministerial boxes between six and... Different to, and you say different to Brown... Brown yes. abandoned all well, that. Well, that. that was also the thing. We say in the first chapter, actually, that uh, the, the difference when he went in on that night and that the sort of chaos of the very final months and weeks of the Brown era, where, of course, there were famous stories of printers being thrown against office walls in number 10 and people being shouted at and emails being sent at 3 o'clock in the morning. All of this went. And so there was a totally different approach uh, to the way he conducted business um, and his style of governing is very different. Now, some people will say maybe it's a too laid back, and I'm sure we may come on to this and maybe questions from the audience, that he did let things go a bit, and we certainly say that in, in various areas, various issues, that he was a bit too late on things, and although incredibly conscientious, diligent as a figure, and some policy issues who felt he just didn't grasp things quickly enough or the detail quickly but enough. You, but you, you also suggest, though, don't you, that he... He's sort of almost, you talk about the big beasts, he's a, he's a prime minister like Wilson and Attlee with a cabinet of big beasts, and that he almost subcontracted areas of policy to them and let them get on with it and then set the tone, you know, like a, sort of almost like a non-executive chair at the middle of the system. 
Not at all like Gordon Brown, one might argue. Well, indeed. I mean, uh, control freakery freakery was the charge against the Gordon Brown style of government. It's a massive change. And a massive change of ethos and manner, the the way, the tempo of the government. Uh, And obviously, the fact that it was a coalition, I think, also gave a different dynamic. Um, I mean, there was no machinery to, to support coalition governments. The office of the Deputy Prime Minister had existed in the past, but it was often particularly departmental with Nick Clegg. He wanted a cross-departmental view of things. None of this had been set up. So in a way, the creativity of those first few months and that atmosphere from the, from the Rose Garden Conference did prevail. Uh, and it, there was a very sort of good enemy between the, 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 the protagonists in the government, and that was the tone was set from David Cameron downwards. Of course, it did then begin to unravel because various agendas came in and disputes and obviously natural interests from the two parties of government. But at the beginning, it was a huge contrast, as you say. And, and, yeah, oh, yes, I'm sorry. I was going to say that, that, that uh, in the early days of, of uh, the Cameron administration, the civil servants and aides would talk about the jab marks on the back of the uh, uh, car seat, uh, the seat in front, where he had jabbed away. And because he had... Gordon Brown had very poor eyesight, as you will know. He used to write in, in uh, very uh, big, thick uh, pens, so they were big jab marks. And there was a table in one of the rooms where they'd kind of point as if it was kind of horror, sort of curiosity. You'd go and see the jab marks on the table. Uh, and then uh, I when I uh, started talking about it in, in the press, uh, the table was, was smarted away and it, it disappeared, uh, sort of magicked away. But... I think that it is worth thinking, Tony, just about how hard that job is as Prime Minister. Uh, and it, it is uh, those people uh, uh, who very freely criticise, and, and rightly so, the Prime Minister, what they do. It is probably a more difficult job over those 100 years. And you think about many of the uh, Prime Ministers who had time in uh, Downing Street to uh, take long holidays um, and read long books, uh, and Macmillan you know, going off by uh, a boat uh, to, um, uh, to, to uh, and a long, uh, long journey down to South Africa away for weeks, uh, and Churchill in the 50s going off to see Truman, then Eisenhower, by boat across the Atlantic. I mean, a very different world to the incessant uh, world of the Prime Minister, and, and he is uh, very focused uh, in his boxes that uh, pile up overnight, and he, as Peter was saying, he deals with those between 6 and 8 in the morning, uh, very focused on security, that ever-present uh, fear of uh, a terrorist a- attack. He had Lee uh, Rigby, the possibility of a 7-7 attack, constantly there in his mind. He's probing, probing, probing away uh, at GCHQ, MI5, MI6, probing the uh, intelligence much more so than many prime ministers. I, I think it's a hard job. Uh, uh, I th- you know, one wonders how uh, Boris Johnson or uh, others uh, would cope. You have to have uh, a temperament that can cope with extreme pressure because you show pressure when you're then on camera and everything is picked up. You have to not only be 
calm and centered, but you have to come across as being yeah. calm and centered while also being hard work. I mean, it's dead easy to be calm uh, and, and to let everything go hang and, you know, go out for leisurely lunches, uh, but to be very focused, uh, uh, you know, and get cut through the work but in the way he does. So I think that's the point about psychological. And most, let's face it, Tony, you've got to be a bit barking to go into number 10 anyway. You have to be, have psychologically be a little bit weird uh, to want to do that to yourself and to your family, knowing that it's going to, for the rest of your life, change your well, partner's life and your children, that they're going to have security around them for the rest of their uh, lives. It is a horrendously big thing to do and to take on. And there is a deep, deep uh, ambition as well as a calling about it in prime ministers. And many of them are peculiar people. Now, I'm going to open this to the question in a mo uh, to the audience in a moment, but the one time when you say that it wasn't like this, when he wasn't calm, was, well, not the only time, but the one where it's particularly visible in the book is uh, in the matter of the Scottish referendum, where you use the words tense, tetchy, and indeed petrified, which is a very different picture than the one we've just discussed. Now, um, was that because it was out of apparently out of control or because he began to see himself as you know, the Prime Minister who presided up over the breakup of the United Kingdom or just a different side of a person who otherwise is as we've just discussed him? Well, I think primarily his job was on the line. Right. Uh, and as we say um, in that chapter on the, on the votes last September, in those last few weeks when you had that YouGov poll, uh, it really was panic stations in Downing Street. And because of the funny relationship they had, I mean, there was the Better Together campaign. Lots it, of talking to Alistair Darling, lots of, I see. Yes, lots of uh, talking to Alistair Darling every day. Lots of talk, phone calls between Cameron and Gordon Brown, who were not <laughs> the, exactly best friends a few years before then. Um, it was a sense that the thing was slipping yeah. through their fingers. And although they were confident from the outset, that confidence did begin to uh, drain away when the poll came. And interestingly, um, you know, the, the sheer relief, and in fact there's a photograph on the, in the chapter we, in front of it, the sheer relief mm. on the night when the results were coming through. And they were sitting in uh, Craig Oliver, Craig Oliver's his director of communications, they were sitting in the press room in number 10, or actually in number 11 actually, uh, and he had his children on his knees, and, there was, and the sheer joy when those results came through. You could tell that he thought, my job is saved. But also, I think more historically, I mean, he would have been remembered as the Prime Minister, like Lord North, who lost America. He was the Prime Minister who would have lost Scotland. He's got another chance on that matter, of course, coming up, hasn't he? Perhaps. We'll talk to the, yeah. the audience can ask about that. Uh, and, and the other occasions, Tony, when he was very agitated was in 2011, uh, when, I mean, he learned a lot as, as being Prime Minister. Some Prime Ministers uh, learn and others uh, don't learn. Often the learning curve is like that, and then it goes down. I think he has uh, learned immensely. Blair learned too late, as he himself admits, how to be prime minister, uh, partly because it was too easy for him uh, early on. But Cameron had a very difficult 2011, and then the Rebecca Wade Brooks uh, emails came out, and the lots of love stuff, and it, it, it desperately worried him because it, he felt his personal integrity was being called into question, and all the concerns over Andy Coulson, who was his press secretary, and the, Coulson's involvement in, in, in uh, the whole scandals uh, surrounding uh, uh, the, the, the press, uh, uh, and it was a very bleak time for him. So that, 
2014, but also 2012, uh, when that Olympic summer after the ominous shambles budget, Osborne's big miscalculation, uh, his budget in 2012, uh, it, it, the, the problems wouldn't go away, the economy wasn't going right. People who'd supported Plan A, the austerity program uh, in Europe uh, and in Britain were, were drifting away. And the Olympics happened, and then he, he really started missing his father, as we talked about. Yeah. Uh, 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 there, his father had died in 2011, his son had died in 2009, Ivan, and these things came back, and he saw himself really very clearly as leader of the nation, uh, but without his son and without his father there with him. So that was a difficult time. And on the 2014, very quickly on devolution, you know, they would say in, 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 the, in the weeks uh, uh, running up to it that, you know, this is going to be, you know, we're petrified. You know, this, this is going to be like, uh, it'll be like Lord North, as Peter was saying, and the loss of the 13 American colonies uh, uh, in the 1780s. Um, and they really saw it in those terms. It reminded me of being with, major on the battle bus in, two, in 1997. And I was marking some essays at the time about the 1945 Labour landslide. Um, and he, he looked over my shoulder uh, and said, you know, what, what is this? Uh, and it was probably, actually, pretty, it might have been one of your essays on, on, on that. <laughs> and, and, and he said, he said, it was actually about the 1945 and the terrible landslide. And he said, oh my God, he said, do you think, this is what it actually was, he said, do you think it's going to be, uh, that bad, and I don't know what came over me, but I said, I think it's going to be worse. <laughs> I don't know why I did that, but it was really fun, actually. Um, no, I mean, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't fun. I mean, I, I did say that, because I thought at the time, uh, the Conservatives, if I remember, got 213 to uh, Labour 393, someone uh, correct me if I got those wrong, but the, uh, the, that, that's about right. I mean, it was horrific, and, and you know, he feared, in the same way Cameron feared, uh, a terrible humiliation, and he would have gone, as we talk about uh, in, in the book there, he absolutely would have had to have gone had that uh, election, had the referendum uh, been lost in um, September 19, 2014, and his children came down. He went up to bed at three, so I just can't stand it anymore. And, and he said to Craig Oliver, his press secretary, the Alistair Campbell uh, equivalent, he said, just text me. Um, and he came down two hours later. He hadn't slept, um, and they started seeing it was bad news. And the children, the first time his children really began to sense their father's um, apprehension at that, was at that time. They came and sat on his uh, knees. And there's a picture of, of them in the book. Yeah. Okay, thanks uh, both. Uh, now, uh, some questions. What I'd like to do is to take two or three at a time. So, yes, write them. I've got some papers to write them down myself. One here first. People in the balcony, of course, can also ask questions. I'm going to jab this paper if I can't. Don't, okay. don't like the question. So we've got one here, one there. And could you, do you, I mean, don't, you don't have to say who you are, but if you'd like to say who you are, please, please do. I'm Roger Hiskey from uh, Harris Academy in Bermondsey. Uh, just a, a simple question, really. Do you, do you think uh, David Cameron's admission that he's not going to serve a third term was perhaps a mistake? And do you think... Uh, with your knowledge of other prime ministers and your knowledge of history, that this is going to weaken him uh, with his civil servants and in the British, British parliamentary system. Okay, and nice, good question. One here and then one up in the balcony there. And actually, we'll take a fourth as well. This one fourth. Yeah. So, soon after David Cameron became leader of the Conservative Party in 2005, um, I remember Labour ran us sort of campaign sort of advert against him about Dave the Chameleon playing on his PR background. Um, I mean, some of what you've spoken about shows that Cameron has sort of 
changed in many respects. But um, then again, chameleon perhaps is unfair. So what's, what's your take on that? Is, is it flexibility in a good way, or is it just blowing with the wind? Okay, thanks very, thanks very much. Now, then two in the back. One there, and then one over here. Right. Thank you. Uh, John Hume, we're a couple of uh, points about the Liberal Democrats. Uh, first of all... Um, on the one hand, you had a situation where the coalition lasted a full five years. And I wonder whether you could say something about whether or not that amounted to um, a resurrection of a cabinet government. On the other hand, uh, consider the ruthlessness with which the Lib Dems were disposed in 2015 privately. Was David Cameron really considering the Lib Dems to be the 21st century equivalent of Lenin's useful idiots? <laughs> Good. Excellent. Uh, and, uh, yeah, um, thank you. Um, so you touched on it, upon it already, but I want to ask uh, your honest opinion about Cameron's honest opinion of uh, the UK's membership of the EU and if you do believe that he does honestly think that the UK should remain part of the EU do you think he's strong enough to stand up to the backbenchers and well put forward the, the arguments and really convince the British public that the UK should remain part of the EU? Okay um, so, so if I'll take Rogers and John's and um, I'll take Ro Rogers and uh, that last question if you take Dave and John. So, Roger, about the first admission on the, on the, uh, the he was going to not fight another general election in the very, admittedly, very unlikely event that he was going to win, and that would have been an operative consideration. Um, the, 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 the BBC, unsurprisingly, for whom uh, Peter uh, works, uh, saw this as, as, as the coup of the century, if not the millennium, to have squeezed this amazing confession uh, out of uh, David Cameron that he wasn't going to uh, fight yet another general election. Rubbish. Uh, uh, it, it, it was, uh, and part of the skill of it was to make it seem to have been um, a, a blurt out. Uh, and he can blurt things out. I mean, he can, as he did about uh, the, the, uh, the Queen after the referendum. I mean, he can, purring. yeah, purring. Uh, he can say some. He can say some quite gauche things, and uh, and his rather patronising comments about women in the House of Commons too. So he can be gauche. But I think on this occasion, he was simply just being honest, and I think it suited him quite well because had uh, he gone into that election with everyone thinking he'd go on and on, I. I think there could have been more of an anti-Cameron sense against him. Remember that in that uh, 2010 to 15, he had so much opposition from his own. I mean, forget Miliband. We haven't even mentioned Miliband, by the way. Remember, does anyone remember Ed Miliband? Suddenly occurred to me at that point. But, but it wasn't Ed Miliband's labour. It was his own backbenchers. So it took pressure, it took heat uh, off him going into the... Uh, campaign. There was the hope then of, of maybe a, a Boris would take them into the subsequent general election if the election was won. It took heat off him in the uh, election earlier this year, and I think in this term here, people would have been speculating anyway. I mean, come on, are we so daft as to think that the, this party conference wasn't going to be overshadowed by preening competitions between George Osborne, Theresa May, and Boris Johnson, the uh, contemporary uh, uh, likely front runners to succeed him. Of course, it would have been. Uh, and 
admitting for him, though he's talking subtly now about going on full five years, don't believe it, um, uh, it has it, it taken pressure off him and it's allowed him to concentrate his own mind and I think it will uh, not have t- taken anything away from his effectiveness. But that's a minority view. Uh, James uh, Langdale, Peter's uh, colleague, um, thought it was a massive coup and Peter uh, thinks it was a massive coup and a complete um, confession uh, and a blurt out by Cameron. That's what you think, isn't it? Uh, well, I think it was a coup journalistically. I mean, it was quite a scoop yeah. on those terms. But I think, you were, I think you're right, Anthony. I think he, he said what he was feeling, and it wasn't a premeditated... It, it was something that it was in his mind, yeah. but he didn't decide to use that interview to say, this is the point I want to make. It was just he just it wasn't a piece of political tactic or indeed. I don't think it was it Machiavellian ta- yeah. in that sense. Yeah, it wasn't okay. a piece of posturing or positioning. Okay, so so just midway point, quick quick piece of uh, audience participation. Who thinks that that confession weakened him in the election that's gone and uh, this term? Hands up. It's a very unacademic thing to do that. Back row, uh, take their names down and report them, please. Uh, uh, <laughs> and the rest, obviously, on the other side. Clearly, upstairs yeah. and downstairs. Yeah. That's that's a, yeah. Good. They, 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 they pay uh, much more upstairs. Good. Pete. Um, uh, here, uh, Dave's point about the PR background yeah, and the I, coalition. I mean, int- yes. Is he, is he just a slick willy? Well, I mean, he, he, is, he is a slick politician. And, and when I say slick willy, I'm not thinking of, uh, of, of pigs or anything, right? No. This is, the word right, that was used was chameleon. Chameleon. Yeah, different okay. Which I, I think was a Labour Party political ad. I think it goes back a long way, 2006 or yeah. seven. Uh, which was memorable at the time, but didn't seem to stick. And, and neither did the... Uh, there was also the yeah. Crewe and Nantwich by-election, which was also another time when they tried to... They sent up people to dress up as toffs in top hats and tails, and it didn't seem to make an impact either on, on, in that sense. But, yes, I mean, he is a slick communicator. I mean, in some people think he's too slick. I mean, he is, he's a very well oiled, well-spoken uh, politician. But I don't think that's to suggest that he's devoid of principles or strong-held views. I think that is to misread the man. Um, I think he does have, and we, we touched on it earlier, he travels ideologically quite lightly, but the views that he does hold very dearly and the principles that he, he expounded in government, whether it was international development, whether it was gay marriage, those were things that he genuinely believed in rather than doing for political expediency. So that, that would be my answer on that. So, so convictions, not ideological principles, yeah. a la Thatcher. Yeah, or Corbyn. Or Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. yeah. He's been um, mentioned too. Good. That's yeah. them both out of the way. Now, Liberal Democrats. The, the Liberal Democrats. Um, I think the thing about the, working with the Liberal Democrats is that I don't think he did... Again, I don't think he saw it in a Machiavellian way that this is a way that he could hold on to power for a long enough period. I think he genuinely believed the only way to have stable government was to have this, make this full comprehensive offer, which is one of the biggest decisions he's made of his political career. Um, and obviously it had a very interesting teething period, as we discussed. There wasn't the machinery of government behind it, but it gradually began to work I mean, towards the end, interestingly, they did begin to work more closely on some issues when many commentators thought they were just going through the motions. Uh, and one, except, one big exception to that was the final budget. And as we say in the book, Nick Clegg didn't want a budget in March 2015 at all. And there was a massive uh, row between him and Osborne about it and disagreements also about the Northern Powerhouse and whether 
a deal for Sheffield would be included, which Nick Clegg was insisting on. So there was, you know, there was, there was a lot of tension, but I think overall it was, a, it was a form of government that suited him particularly well. And I suppose, um, depending on what electoral system, whether we, we keep hold of first past the post, we may see a return of in the future. I don't think to say this was just an aberration that once in a, about three generations we have coalition government, I think maybe we'll see one uh, in the not-too-distant future. Even, e even in 2010, uh, there was a, a sense of um, awareness of, of what they were doing and the damage that the leading Tories were going to do to uh, Lib the Lib Dems. On the last night of the coalition discussions, just after in those uh, heated days in May 2010, uh, William Hague got back very late, uh, at night, disturbed Fee on his wife and said, uh, we've just signed uh, up to something that is going to completely destroy the Lib Dem party. And even then, they thought they were very naive. They hadn't done the work about what the coalition uh, would involve and what they should really be fighting for. They hadn't looked at the fact that in Europe, uh, the uh, second party in a coalition government often uh, get smashed at the following general election. They hadn't looked carefully at even the history of the Liberal Party in this country in coalition. So uh, not cynically, but in a sense, with a sense of foreboding for them. Uh, and I think the Conservatives were divided into those who were uh, slightly romantic about the Liberal Party, and I'd put Cameron uh, in that camp, and those who were out and out... Um, uh, uh, cynics uh, and purely mechanistic had a view about it as a necessary uh, evil uh, and process, and that would be George Osborne, who was much, much harder and more ruthless all the way through uh, about the uh, Lib Dems uh, than Cameron. And Cameron had a close personal relationship with Clegg. He'd get irritated with Clegg. He thought Clegg was a bit of an old woman uh, and a bit of a dilettante about various things, but uh, liked him and admired him. Uh, Osborne was very impatient. It was extremely angry in the last months before the general election, particularly of the Northern Powerhouse, uh, where Clegg was, was profoundly angry and disillusioned with Osborne, but knew that... And Osborne then strung him along, and, uh, and uh, Clegg said, look, we are not going to have a budget with you, and Osborne said, yes, you are. Now, if you do, I'll give you this, and I'll give you that, and you can have your own budget the day after. And Danny Alexander came along with a yellow box, and the rest is history, as they say. So, um, and then just on the EU, so, so what do I... Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he does not want to be known as the uh, prime minister who uh, saw the breakup of, of Scotland, and he doesn't want to be the prime minister, his Scottish uh, name uh, 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 being not a small part of that. He doesn't want to be the, known as the prime minister who's taken this country out of Europe. Um, he is uh, at the very beginning of his time in power, 2008, um, uh, he'd made this pledge uh, in opposition about having a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. Uh, he'd taken uh, the party out of the EPP bloc. I mean, quite a sort of hard-nosed attitude towards uh, the EU, not romantic in any sense. I mean, Blair was a romantic about uh, the EU. Uh, and, you know, Cameron wasn't, but has understands that for the position, he might be wrong about this, of course, but thinks that the interest of the British economy will be better served by a uh, remaining in, albeit with, and if he can get it, uh, a more distant um, a relationship that uh, avoids Britain being part of an ever closer anything project. Uh, so that's how I 
uh, see it. And he knows, look, he knows that it could all uh, go wrong and that and at the moment, my sense is that Britain is going to vote to come out. Uh, and if that happens, then uh, what will Scotland do? Scotland uh, will say that they want to stay, and that could precipitate another referendum. Under those circumstances, it's uh, likely that the, the referendum this time will be won um, uh, by those who want to break away. Uh, so, you know, high, high stakes. This man's uh, everything is up for grabs about, uh, with Cameron. Uh, and the deciding factors are going to be uh, Europe, can he get a settled new relationship that endures? Scotland, can he embed it much more into the UK? The economy, are we really in threatening signs at the moment? Is he really going to be able to drive through? He'd be judged on the economy more than anything. Can he get down the deficit? Can he drive through the public sector reform uh, reforms? Can he decentralise? If he can do those, he will be, um, and he knows that the EU is at the heart of that. Very good. Now let's take some more questions. I can see one right in the middle there, one at the front here on the balcony. I can't think more from the balcony. One in the middle, one at the front of the balcony. Can we get a microphone into the middle there? Then okay. to the front. And then the chap here and uh, maybe over there. Yeah. Uh, you can, if you've got loud voices, you can belt them start, out. Start, but yes. Yeah. Go on. I mean, I mean, do start so we get... Here we are. Thank you very much. Um, Matthew Dean. Um, I really enjoyed the book, and uh, I don't work for the marketing department of William Collins, but I thought it was fantastic. I'm so uh, sorry, I didn't hear that, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on, don't just ignore the authors, My, go on. One of the themes that goes through the first third of the book is Cameron's really ropey relationship with many of his backbenchers, and you can almost sort of hear the sighs coming out of the page when the Downing Street switchboard says that Graham Brady's on the phone and he's going to have to take the call. And then suddenly, almost magically, in November 2012, Linton Crosby turns up and starts working two days a week. And Cameron finds that the Tory party discover self-discipline again and become far more focused was it really Crosby that's the, uh, the real power behind the throne who really made a difference, more than the Whips, more than Osborne, and more perhaps even than uh, the Deputy Prime Minister? We'll take front here, right down the front. Yes, you've got the microphone. Thank you. Could I ask for your views about Cameron's role as a statesman internationally? I think particularly how he managed to have such a disaster around the vote around bombing Syria a couple of years ago, but also whether or not he's likely to try to revive that and how you think he's viewed internationally as a statesman, because one gets a sense that we've rather lost something there compared to some of the other prime ministers who spent a lot yeah. of time doing that. Yeah, no, good. These great questions. And um, guy in the middle here. Yep. Okay, belted out down the middle. Well, let's wait the camera okay. won't pick it okay. up. Go on. Okay, good point. When Cameron first came to office, or before he came to office, he was in favour of getting rid of the punch and duty style of politics. Um, obviously, there's been a slight change in the Labour Party and a promise that politics will be more edifying. And I wonder what your views are and how Cameron will change his prime ministerial style in order to potentially accommodate that. I noticed that in PMQs this afternoon, he was chiding the Labour Party, using those words back at them. Yeah. as they were chuntering at him while he was speaking. We'll take the third question here. Fourth here. 
Yeah, uh, microphone. Apparently, it's for the TV. For the TV. I think um, you're, you're on TV, live. a charming um, tactician internationally, yeah. who knows what he wants to do, yeah. and that's why he's going in 2015. And in the meantime, he can play around with things which he'd like to see done, but it won't matter to him too much. You mean when and that's a very cynical view. Yeah. When he gets yeah. in 2020. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so, so, yes? Yes, Okay, on. so, so ropey, relations. Uh, ropey relations, uh, backbenchers. Yeah, he <clears> just <throat> doesn't love his backbenchers uh, one bit. And, and they knew, they knew that he preferred uh, the Lib Dems and Clegg's company uh, to their own, to, to the kind of Eurosceptic uh, uh, Thrasham, Lasham uh, 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 Tories. And, and that's why the comments that he made about UKIP supporters, in a way, stuck so much because they encapsulated a truth about what he thinks about a certain kind of right-wing uh, uh, Tory, um, uh, very pro-nationalistic, uh, anti-immigration, and they hated him over... Uh, gay marriage, uh, which he stuck at despite the fact that it's one of the few issues that broke up his team in, inside Downing Street on which his team disagreed uh, with people saying, for God's sake, you know, just drop it, you know, because it's damaging us. We can't take it. You know, we have so much on. So, yeah, then along comes Crosby, and wow, uh, effectively uh, his influence is felt from 2013. Crosby says, you know, uh, if I come back, I don't have to come back. I don't need you. You need me. Uh, if I come uh, and do this for you, I'm only going to work to two people. That's you, uh, David Cameron, and you, George Osborne. And Steve Hilton and the others, no way. Uh, and I'm going to do all your polling also, and I'm going to be total control. And he was. And I think that one reason why we had such an explosion, like at the party conference last week and, uh, and just after the general election from Cameron, was he felt very suppressed. Uh, and he had to bite his lip for the best part of, uh, of, of two years uh, as uh, Crosby uh, drove through and did what he felt was necessary uh, to, to, to recapture the voters and to uh, get the Tory party the best possible chance of victory. So that's what I think happened. <coughs> and Pete's going to talk about international... I mean, you're quite critical about the international, his international yeah. position, aren't you? You say he had no real plan when he took office. So this is... in. In the, in the book, you know, we've been discussing it so far. Uh, uh, apart positively. From, okay, apart from coming out of okay, apart from coming out of Afghanistan, which yeah. you drove through. Sure. Yeah, but you're otherwise. Yeah, I mean, Afghanistan was a plan, very see. early decision Go to ahead. withdraw, which he took very early on. But apart from that, um, we are very critical of the way there was a lack of strategic uh, decision making on yeah. foreign policy. I mean, interestingly, we, we have two chapters. We have a chapter on Libya and what happened there, the initial attack, uh, the initial campaign, and then a chapter on Syria. Uh, and I think we draw similar conclusions. I mean, he, he wanted, rather like Tony Blair, he, he wanted to act out of a humanitarian impulse. I mean, his belief was that if he stood, and he, and he said it today in the House of Commons, actually, the consequences of inaction for him were far more serious than the consequences of dealing with what he thought was a dictator, a dictatorial autocratic regime um, about to kill all of, a lot of its people. Um, obviously, the lack of planning and the lack of what do we do next uh, in Libya, and we've seen it, it unravel. It has in many ways become a, a failed state. We talk about that in, in, in that chapter in the book. 
But more seriously on Syria, and I think your question was about his international authority, I mean, there's no doubt that when he lost that vote, it did damage his authority, both domestically and internationally. And Britain's standing in the world, and there was a lot of comment at the time, is this it? Is this Britain now withdrawing as a, as a Western power, being able to join forces with the United States and bilaterally and intervene in Syria in that case? Interestingly, I'm not sure if it's... I think if the pronouncements may have been a bit premature... I mean, we shall see what happens in the next few weeks and months vis-à-vis uh, -vis Syria and whether there is a vote in the House of Commons. But I'm not sure whether it has had the lasting impact. I think it's too early to tell whether his decisions there and the, and the, and the uh, rushed way in which he brought that matter to the House of Commons and then losing it, I'm not sure if that has had a permanent imprint on his foreign policy legacy, we, I think time will tell. They also decided, to, as you say in the book, to shrink the defence forces, to make defence. It wasn't protected, it now is, perhaps, yeah. but it was unring-fenced, which is, for a Conservative government, quite surprising. It's even coalition, sorry, it was a coalition government, quite led by Conservatives, quite surprising. So that sort of signals that there was a conscious willingness to do less, certainly, than Blair. Had certainly, and, and again, it was the state of the budget, really, and the Treasury pinning down on the yeah. MOD all the way from the beginning. But it was so interesting. I mean, there was, it caused great difficulties within the Conservative Party, that decision not to commit to 2% of GDP on defence. Huge difficulties and rancour from people in the MOD and former generals, and, and we talk about it in one of the later chapters in the book. So yeah. that was something, again, he had to get off his chest as soon as they got, they got back in. Uh, yes, we are critical of his uh, foreign and defence policy, Peter, perhaps even uh, more so than me. And it's ironic because he set up the National Security Council to provide the very consistency of uh, policy that they felt were lacking uh, under Blair with his Den-style decision-making and under Brown uh, with all the vacillations over Afghanistan. Um, it, it was... Um, I, I think I'd just say this, that that he, if he hadn't acted in Libya, it was very hard to know what to do, and that happens to leaders. Uh, sometimes there are easy wins, and sometimes the issues come along, such as Libya, where if he hadn't acted the way he did, it would have been, uh, he would have been heavily criticised. Also, they were very... Everybody, we're all affected by our own reading of history, our own personal history and, uh, and national history, and he was very affected by what had happened in Srebrenica uh, and, and, and the pain and the cost of inaction, the inhumanity of it. He's a very, you, know, you might not agree, but I think he's a very humane uh, individual who's, who uh, gets very stuck in uh, and concerned about uh, what's happening to, 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 to people. And so, yes, it didn't work out well. Yes, maybe they could have done more, though, you know, they would argue they, they couldn't, given the position of Russia and the inability to uh, get uh, UN security forces into uh, Libya with the Russian uh, veto uh, almost certainly being applied. Syria, what could he have done? You know, a, a critic would say this was hopeless, unprime ministerial, should have gone, uh, his whole foreign policy hold below the water. On the other hand, uh, there we were, uh, Saddam in all likelihood had used chemical weapons, uh, which were outlawed, uh, which was a, a step change in, in the way that war was conducted by this, uh, as he would see, appalling uh, a dictator, um, and uh, utterly inhumane. And the book does uh, uh, recount 
uh, blow by blow the, the conversations with Miliband in extraordinary detail and with the White House. Um, it was just too little time uh, to win over support and too little clarity about what should they do. Were they trying to uh, hit Assad, a uh, bad man? Were they trying to hit ISIS? Were they trying to support the uh, good uh, opponents of um, Assad? Are there indeed any such things as good... So it was all very complicated. Just let me say just finally about the punch and Judy. Look, every prime minister, when they come into Downing Street uh, or become a leader of their party heading for Downing Street, you know, want to have an end of, uh, of tit for tat and they want somehow to... They feel this great sense of, uh, of mission and nobility. They're taking over the nation. Uh, they're deeply proud. Uh, and that's what he felt. And he wanted to end that. And I think, you know, Deborah Mattinson's uh, focus group work shows that the public... Uh, see him as a family man and as somebody who is a decent, uh, non-aggressive person. And by the way, I don't think that he is an aggressive or a nasty person, not true of all prime ministers. Um, uh, but, but, you know, Mrs. Thatcher, I mean, for goodness sake, Mrs. Thatcher, on the, the, on the, 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 at the door of Downing Street when she came in in May 1979, quoted, who, do you remember who she quoted? St. Francis of Assisi, about, you know, where there is discord, may we have harmony. Uh, what? Um, what happened next? You know, so, so, so it, the impulse is there, but I think in him it's very genuine. He's a much more genuinely consensual uh, figure uh, than she was. My sense, our sense. Though interestingly, this, the, the coalition and this government's approach to public spending is vastly more radical in terms of cutting it than hers ever was, going back to the point you made. We say yes. I mean, he managed to shrink or cut the, the size of the public realm of the GDP in the same scale in a five-year period, and she did it in, and that, didn't try, tried to do it over an 11-year period. They're so. headed for a state the size of America's in a country with a welfare system, which is a remarkable experiment. That's looking forward yeah. and not part of this tonight. Now, um, we'll yeah. take a little one round, and we must be relatively quick, because I know okay. we need to be sort of done by about 10 to 8. So, okay, um, so, so, so just so people know, uh, we've got just under 10 minutes to go. Uh, they really can't belt out questions, can they? No, because it's one, two. No, we need so yeah, one, mic. two. Can you get the mic? Get microphone there because it's closest. One here for next, and then one there for third. Okay. Yep. We'll, we'll be very, very brief. Peter, be brief. Be fast. Hi, um, Harvey Chan at Brunel University. Um, I just want to know what you thought about how Cameron would define himself in the second term. The first term, obviously, had the uh, Lib Dems in there. And he used them a lot to kind of prop up a lot of his policies. In the uh, new parliament, he has a very small majority. The 1922 committee, um, a lot larger. And uh, he has all these kind of competing interests. Big department. Um, so the, the question is, government. is he going to hack it or what? Or how is, is he going to hack it? Or? Is he going to find it easier to define himself yeah. um, in the second term? Okay, those... good. Okay. And then... There's a question. Yeah, you've got yep. it there. Um, fairly simple question. Obviously, during the conference, the battle lines were drawn between the members of Parliament who are going to inherit David Cameron's position. Who do you guys, in your honest opinion, think would be successful in doing so? Who are we most... Who is likely to take over? Yeah. Who is likely to take over? Who do you think is going to take over? <laughs> um, I think Osborne is probably best, best Osborne. place. Osborne. And do you, do you think that's good? Um, he's a very effective leader. I think what? he'll be a very effective politician. Okay, good. All right. And, and the third so one was we'll back there. Yep. Gentleman, a sort of reddish shirt towards back. Um, yep. So, there. Okay. 
If um, the Labour Party had actually provided an effective opposition leader, do you think Miliband would have actually won the election? So if, wow, if, what a question. So had, had Miliband been an effective leader, yeah, or, 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 an, a, or an effective so, leader? So, so, so did Miliband effectively yeah. lose it for yeah. Labour? It's a counterfactual book you should do next. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's a good okay. question. One more I'll do that. female question. Okay. A defining question that sums everything up brilliantly. Female questioners in the audience? And uh, we, yes. Uh, All right, let's take so one we'll, back. Man at the back with a... Sorry, I've, yeah, go on. Okay, don't say it. Uh, just wanted to push you a bit further on Europe and uh, your thoughts on, on Cameron's... Uh, Potential, possibly failure to confront his own backbenchers and uh, constant giving in and giving in, and whether you think eventually this will lead to the, um, uh, the, the Conservative Party splitting on the campaign and potentially uh, on the referendum campaign and potentially splitting the party in the future. Okay, right. Okay, Europe again. Okay, so, so um, do you see second term? Yeah, I mean, I think we've already seen in the last few months how he's beginning to try and define his second term. And I think the speech last week was very interesting in him stamping his personal authority on what he wants his premiership to be about. And it's quite different in tone. I mean, it's very different to, to the utterances that he said in, in, the, in all his speeches since becoming prime minister. In fact, you have to go back to his very early speeches as leader of the Conservative Party 10 years ago to find similar language and, and rhetoric. So I think that would be very interesting if he tries to pursue... I mean, that obviously, a lot of warm words, a lot of rhetoric that you don't hear from a Conservative leader or prime minister. Whether he delivers that through policy will be the, the test of that, I suppose. I mean, the other thing that will define him, as we've talked about, is, is Europe. I mean, that, that will be the central question. And the economy as well. Uh, there could be huge upsets again. How well prepared will the economy be? How robust will it be? These two will define him and the way he's seen in history, definitely. Okay, and uh, who's going to take over uh, if Europe is lost? It's going to be Boris. Uh, if uh, the European uh, referendum is won, it's going to be Boris. Um, uh, <laughs> Boris thinks, however it will be, uh, Osborne. So it's either going to be, uh, it, depends, it does depend on, on what happens in the referendum, so it's going to be either uh, Boris uh, or Osborne if the referendum is won for Britain to remain in, and then the general election is going to be in 2020, will be one of those two against Chukaramuna, and Labour is going to win uh, by 17 seats. Well, bookmakers in the audience, you know, you expect the books, the bets later on. The Miliband question. Well, take Europe and then take Miliband. You're right. I mean, I think on Europe, he... I mean, we talk about the Bloomberg speech, which was his key speech on Europe, and he was certainly on the defence. He was pushed into making a speech. He didn't plan to make that speech, as we say... Very early on, he didn't really see Europe as a, as a central uh, area that he was going to have to deal with when he became prime minister. And he was pulled along by a group, uh, uh, 30, 40, even 50 backbenchers for whom Europe is their most important issue. Um, I think it's different now. I think he, because he won, albeit with a small majority, he has greater authority. And you can tell that the sceptics whether they're Bernard Jenkins, Bill Cash, 
they do come out uh, on the likes of the Today programme and, and say their thing, but it's, it's diff- they are waiting. They're giving him that leeway. They're giving him time. Obviously, there are off-the-record briefings, but I think they are genuinely waiting for him to see what he will deliver um, come this renegotiation. If it looks like it's semantics, it's a fig leaf of a renegotiation, then I think it's, he's going to be in a very, very difficult spot, and that'll be extremely testing. But again, we just don't know how that'll turn out. Cameron, in his second term, we often think, well, not everyone, when, when no one in this audience, because you all are very wise, but, but political commentators think that prime ministers have free hands. Cameron's second term will be defined by his success in those areas that we talked about, about Europe, Scotland, the economy, the deficit, public services, and to a lesser extent, uh, devolution um, uh, to to local authorities, devolving power. Those will be the deciding factors, and the outcome of those factors won't depend upon political genius of Cameron, though I think he has definitely learned uh, as Prime Minister. I mean, imagine Thatcher if she became Prime Minister in 1965 uh, when Heath took over. She would have been far less effective. You know, Cameron was, was very young. He's learning. But, but external factors will decide far more than any skill of him and Osborne and, and the team running the uh, uh, country in the cabinet positions. Uh, it, it will be the external factors about the international economy, about what happens in Europe, can he get a renegotiation, uh, than, uh, and indeed, is there a terrorist um, uh, attacks on this country? What's going to happen uh, to the refugees that we haven't mentioned? Is that going to put impossible uh, strains? Is Turkey going to collapse? Uh, it, 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 uh, who's going to be the new uh, president after Obama? Is that president going to work constructively and meaningfully with Britain in a way that uh, it wasn't bad with Obama, but it wasn't very meaningful and effective when it really needed to be ne- meaning, meaningful and effective as over Ukraine, as over Syria, and as over Libya. Um, so, you know, that's, those are the factors there. And finally, Ed Miliband, I think that's so interesting. You know, I'm tempted to say, and, I, I, and the New Statesman wouldn't let me write uh, a piece saying that Ed Miliband, his greatest weakness is his lack of self-knowledge. This is six months before the election campaign, his lack of self-knowledge in that he doesn't realise what a bad leader he is. And if he did, if he had self-knowledge, he would just immediately go uh, and make way for anybody. But you know, you now, uh, and I don't, I think it was, uh, I think he will not go down as a great uh, uh, leader of uh, the Labour Party, though he did better than his ultra-critics say it was difficult taking over from Brown. The Labour Party was uh, in such a mess. And, and I think we just have to look at what's happened after the um, general election. I mean, of course, as we all know, uh, had uh, Ed Miliband gone in September, or just after the party conference, Labour's party conference, September 14, or just before, uh, and had then Jeremy Corbyn taken over, then clearly it would have been a Labour victory. Thank you all very much. I think we'll take that as a good point to end. I was going to ask, the book ends by saying, or towards the very end, that David Cameron is, and I quote, a figure of real historical interest and substance. And I was going to ask, but I'll leave this hanging, what could happen, perhaps Europe is the answer, that would lead you in the next, over the coming years, to to revise that downwards? That's quite a positive thing to say. So anything 
that would lead you to revise it downwards, other than Europe, or perhaps including Europe? I think it does come back. I mean, we're talking about Jeremy Corbyn. In many ways, the, the real opposition at the moment in Parliament is the Scottish National Party. They are, they are posing the greatest threat in many ways with Nicola Sturgeon in the ascendancy. We'll see what happens in the elections. But um, I think if there is another referendum on his watch and it doesn't go the way he wants, his epitaph will be the Prime Minister who loses Scotland. I don't think that's going to happen in the next five years, but I think that would downgrade his situation or his position in history. Uh, Corbyn is a great danger because he performs better when he's on his mark uh, and a weak Labour Party is not going to serve uh, Cameron's or Osborne's strength. The risk is of... Uh, a real risk is of complacency and smugness indeed. Um, and they'd do better had they had a, an effective... Whatever one thinks of Corbyn, it's not going well. Of course, it might suddenly go, start going well next week. On, I'm sure it will. Um, but, but, you know, that's not going to help him. But, you know, just... You know, Cameron is at his best when he's up against the wall and in adversity. And if there is uh, terrorist attacks, if refugees... Uh, become uh, massive menaces if Putin, uh, if we have the brink of, which we might almost be on a, the moment of a third uh, world war, uh, um, it, it, that Cameron, leaders are made, uh, prime ministers are made like other leaders by how they cope in crises. Uh, Churchill without the second world war, Thatcher without uh, the, the, the miners or, 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 or Russia, the Cold War, would have been a very different kind of prime minister. And maybe that the very adversity will be the making of Cameron. Okay, very good. Thank you for that. Thank you both. Um, now, uh, all I have to do from here on is to thank both our speakers for coming and talking so uh, elegantly and uh, abusingly about uh, our prime minister, which is very good keeps us all entertained on an autumn evening. But better than that, there is an opportunity to buy the book. Here is the book. And uh, if you were to buy a copy outside, there's a large table groaning under them, uh, I think I'm right in saying that the authors will stay here and sign them afterwards. You'll do that, will you? Absolutely, if anyone's nice enough. And and profits do go to good causes also. (laughs) And on that happy note, I wish you all good night and thank you for coming.